Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And happy Easter. Surprise. I know we said we weren't going to um, do a podcast this week because of the holiday weekend, but um, we couldn't help ourselves. There was a lot of good stuff. And so this is a snack size uh, holiday version of the podcast, or at least it's supposed to be. Show your work, Easter edition. So a little bit smaller, but we will be back full size, maybe even extra large next week. However, um, we do have some things to get to. But before that, I just want to say that as we podcast right now, the sweet smell of my chocolate cake is permeating this home. It's lovely, no? Uh, It's true. I never thought I would sit here while you talked about chocolate cake. (laughs) Like, if you're starting a a lifestyle blog about uh, making your life better via chocolate, you let me know. Here's where I'm going to relate it to work, because this is the Show Your Work podcast. Lately... I guess, I'm, I don't know, in the last 18 months, two years, everybody's talking about meditation. Fucking meditate. You should meditate. It, you know, makes you more productive. Meditation is good. And there's all kinds of apps out there that help you meditate. Wait, there's meditation apps? Oh my God, so many. Walk me through it like, a, like I'm a child. How, what do you mean? I don't know because I don't use the meditation apps, but I'm told that this one particular meditation app has like 10 million subscribers. So you have it, the app, it tells you, I don't know, where to go, I think, where to start, okay. and then it has music maybe, right. uh, whatever. But meditation is supposed to be, you know, you're in a quiet space, you close your eyes, like maybe you're sitting in like lotus p- position, whatever. I can't do that kind of meditation. Like I have to be honest, I, I have heard many people who are otherwise not so much into the hocus pocus uh, be deeply, deeply transformed by meditation which I did not mean to refer to as hocus pocus, but you get where I'm going. That's right. And so everybody is also saying, like, the way that, it, that someone, you know who tried to sell it to me, um, and it was the most effective way to sell it to me, is uh, Neil… Uh, Neil Pasricha. Pasricha, right. Neil, the Book of Awesome, mm-hmm. if you don't know, the author of the Book of Awesome, he um, told me that, he said, Lainey… I know that you're not into, quote, the hocus pocus style of meditation. And I said, um, I'm we're not, not quoting him, I think, probably. <laughs> That's not actually his quote, I suspect. Um, and, or your quote. Um, he said, but meditation actually can make you even more productive. It can increase your work output. You know, it can turn you into a general. And so that's when I was like, but I can't do the meditation where you sit in a dark room and you close your eyes and you hum or whatever. It's just not my thing. But I've realized that my meditative act has become cooking. Okay. This is not where I thought this was going to go. Uh, I was relating it to the chocolate cake. Why do you think that… Why is it meditative? Why? Well, meditation in its truest form, as I'm beginning to learn, like, you know, through osmosis, everybody talking about it, is actually quite focused. So it's focused… 
solemnity, I guess, serenity. I think it's it's just, it's actually almost focused focus, as you say. The people I have heard of who have benefited from this, A, are all learning about it through work and from work and through bosses or other employers who, you know, buy a meditation seminar as a, as a gift or a team building or a whatever. Um, and yeah, all about getting back to your focus. That's right. So it is focused thinking. Um, no distractions, obviously. You can't multitask. You can't have your devices. And I feel like that is cooking for me. I am extremely mega focused on exactly what it is I'm making. I'm looking at the ingredients. I am measuring. I am only thinking about what I am making. I am not thinking about what Drake's doing. I am not looking at my phone. Texts are coming in. I don't care. I don't know. See, isn't that what we call mindfulness? You see, like, I I don't know. know. No, I'm asking. This is how I feel about working out, which I have come to very late in life, mostly like of the, I need it to be a class. I need it to be something that somebody else is driving that is difficult. And it takes so much for me to do a sustained physical thing for up to an hour at a time that I cannot think about anything else. I am aware of how focused I am on that. I'm not sure that's meditation. I'm not sure that's quite what that is. But I get what you're talking about. I get the mind state. It is the mind state. And then, you know, on the other side, there is a companion to meditation, which scientists are looking into right now. We spoke to a scientist recently on, um, on the social, and she talked about the scientific benefits to the brain of daydreaming. Now, the clarification is that meditation is focused serenity and focused focus. Daydreaming is allowing your mind to wander, um, and there are more effective daydreams than others. For example, they're saying that the science is showing that daydreaming is leading to more fulfillment and happiness. Those who daydream and daydream effectively are reporting greater fulfillment, greater sense of self. Um, but the daydreams are the the daydreams people say that are most rewarding are the ones that involve people you know and care about. It's not like you daydream about meeting um, One Direction. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> or whatever. Um, it involves your family. It involves the people you love in whatever fantasy scenarios. But yeah, they're saying that daydream can be a companion to meditation and both together can yield work benefits. So uh, did we just spend eight to ten minutes exploring meditation as it involves the cake that's currently on your counter? I related it to my chocolate cake when I got up super early today and baked a cake and it was meditative for me. Okay. And I feel like the rest of my day is going to be awesome. Okay. So I'm going to now spend time focusing on how much praise I'm going to have to heap on this cake. True? Oh, right. Right. Because, of course, the cake is in service of a cake and Prosecco open house that Yasik and I are hosting tonight in about 12 hours, where our friends are coming over to eat the cake that I'm baking and drink the Prosecco I'm providing and celebrate. Again. (laughs) Next week, uh, this week we inexplicably open on meditation. Next week we're going to inexplicably open on self-aggrandizement. All right. Well, now that that's out of the way, I, but I do want to talk about where celebrity is concerned. The first thing you did when you stormed into my house this morning 
with your phone in your hand is, is like you showed me this tweet, which was a video of. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like, first of all, I walk in like I own the place. Second of all, it was uh, perturbed that you had not already seen this tweet that came across uh, my phone, my desk. Can we say that now? Uh, of just a charming little video of, you know, a little town on a Saturday morning and Reese Witherspoon just chewing the fuck out of these photographers, out of these paparazzi, for being bad drivers. (laughs) Now, what I, you know, obviously, within the first five seconds, I was like, Madeline! We obviously are going to put it up. Uh, What's hilarious about it is that somehow you can hear what she's saying, even though there's also a spin class going on in the background, but she's just all business, as though this was an item on her to-do list. I just want to tell you all that this is not safe. Like, she's in her little workout gear, in her shorty shorts, and her don't-recognize-me hat. But once that blonde ponytail starts swinging with indignance, there's no mistaking who she is. That is Madeline, Reese, June Carter Cash, Tracy Flick. Actually, first name Laura Jean. Laura Jean Reese Witherspoon is her real name. Lecturing the paparazzi. And then you looked at me. And you said, what did I say? You said, do we love her now? (laughs) And I thought this was really fascinating because look, all the image rehab in the world cannot do what authentically being your own self can do, right? For one's self-image. Reese Witherspoon, who has elicited your eye rolls, your whatevers, your scorn sometimes, has been so authentically herself slash Madeline slash it's good for her to be, you know, things that relate to Madeline, especially if Big Little Lies winds up getting a second season, which is a really interesting development. Um, But this goes back to that thing that we've talked about, that you and Sasha have talked about, that I've sort of uh, battled on, that whole thing of you do you. When you are trying to be something that you're not, when you're trying to show us how charming you are, nobody buys it. It's annoying. It's, or it can't be sustainable if people do buy it. When you are your authentic, lecturing ass, I'm going to yell at you for your unsafe driving self, you buy it. You love her. Yes? I buy it. I think that the, the key here is do I buy it? Yes, I do buy it. I, but I, what I think is funny is that Reese is still her authentic, lecturing, sanctimonious self, even when she's drunk and pulled over by the cops in Atlanta. Do you I, remember that? Of course like, I do. Do oh, you know my name? It's, it's two sides of the same coin. But that's what's so interesting about it is like she was lecturing a cop about pulling them over. She was utterly in the wrong. She's here lecturing some paparazzi (laughs) in broad daylight. It's the same person. For unsafe driving. I assume she's utterly in the right. I don't know, but, you know, it doesn't seem like the thing that you would call attention to unless unless it was necessary. But, yeah, it's the same person. It's the best and worst sides of her personality, but it's the same. It's not trying to be somebody that you're not. It's not fake, which is endearing, right? Like, and let's be honest, I'm not going to praise anybody for A, drunk driving, or B, you know, saying obnoxious things like, do you know who I am to the cops? I am, however, going to say that being your authentic self 
is more is more interesting, is more praiseworthy, is more appreciable for those of us who are watching than trying to be fake perfect all the time. And there are a lot of men who are their authentic selves and don't give a shit whether we think they're being rude. See Alec Baldwin and many others. Yes? Yes. And also please note in this video where we're talking about work is that she's lecturing the paparazzi for driving too fast. She's not lecturing the paparazzi for doing their jobs, which is to take pictures of her. In the end, she actually even taps one on the shoulder and is like, okay, buddy, okay, buddy, you do your job. Just don't drive so fast. I'm going to do my job. You can take my picture. My issue here is the speed. Yeah, she is, is straight ahead about everybody in the ecosystem and what they're doing. That's right. But she somehow felt like they violated part of the code. Yes. Don't cut her off. What yeah. does Reese Witherspoon drive? I know we could find out, but what do you speculate that she drives? Like a little sleek black sports car or a big-ass SUV? I both. Okay, on a Saturday morning when she's wearing her hiking gear and her black don't notice me hat. BMW. Okay. Sleek, black, little BMW. All right. That's what I'm going to say. Okay. BMW is not a sponsor of the show, but they could be. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, so, Reese Witherspoon is actually not our lead story today. Our lead story is… But they relate, though. They do actually relate. Uh, this is not a preformed segue, but I thought it was really interesting because uh, I walked in with this Reese Witherspoon clip today all excited. You sent me uh, our lead story, our article, uh, a couple of days ago, and I was shocked that this is the story that you wanted to go with for the lead story. Well, it's Katy Perry on the cover of Vogue um, for the May issue, which is also the Met Gala issue. I believe she's co-chairing this year. So she is... You know, lately she's got this new look, right? There's the short, bleached, blonde hair. Um, it's probably, I would say, the, at least for me, I consider it to be the best Katy Perry profile I've read. Okay, sure, but that's not a deep pool. What was it about this article, which I agree is mostly good. I have a very specific bone to pick with it that we'll get to later. What is it about this article that that struck you so much that immediately made you say, oh, this is our top story? Well, admittedly, it's because, selfishly, um, I have found, I think, the one thing that I can relate to Katy Perry on. Only one? This is a major one. I don't know if it's only one in the, like, by the time we end this conversation, maybe it'll be five. But it's when she says, quote, I miss references all the time. Right. I really enjoyed, it's the middle section-ish of the, the, the piece, and it's about the fact that she doesn't know. <laughs> she doesn't know she's surrounded by, and I imagine, the way I imagine this going down is that she's in some photo shoot in New York, or she's talking to some writer, well, definitely some writer, she's talking to the writer, and, you know, there are people who are in this artistic community who are dropping, like, references to some book or some piece of literature, or some piece of art, and she's like, I don't know. I don't have that, I don't have that muscle. I don't have that background. And she says, I miss references all the time. Um, I kind of love that. Okay, so let's, let's back up for a second. So she explains the reason why she misses references. So Katy Perry was brought up in 
a very religious community. We, you know, we've known bits of this, but this article spells it out in a way that made it most clear to me that she was the, you know, privileged, uh, or I should say privileged probably, but sheltered, pampered daughter of a pastor and his wife. Um, You know, I have admitted before to a passing or not so passing fascination with uh, fundamentalist subcultures like the Duggars and so forth. And, you know, without spelling it out, that's what we learned. This is where Katie Hudson grew up. She grew up in a fundamentalist subculture. Which we knew. I mean, that was not a secret. No, it wasn't a secret. But this is the first place where we learn the… Consequence of it. Yeah, the benign effects, That's right? right. There are parts where we've known like, oh, her parents wouldn't like her saying, I kissed a girl or, oh, I grew up in church or whatever. But this is the first place where she says things like, I miss references all the time. That's right. Because, and I'm projecting here, but I don't think I'm projecting by much, but because I think she says somewhere in here, education was not the priority. Yes. Often in Not the first priority. Right. Often in these subcultures, there are um, faith-based educations, which is to say that things like science and math are all seen through a biblical worldview, which blows my mind, but it exists. There are, you know, history, whatever, geography, all seen through a biblical framework. And so this is the consequence uh, of somebody who is now, is she 30? Is she a little older than 30? She's a little older than 30. I think she's around 32. So somebody who is now 32 uh, saying, oh yeah, I have gaps in my fundamental education, in my vocabulary. So that's sort of the context. Now let's pause and say, you said, oh, I'm surprised we have that in common. I think most people would be surprised to think you have that in common with Katy Perry. Well, it's not related to being raised in a fundamental home. No, of course not. But I think that, and you, uh, you always use the, the term the Venn diagram. Right. I think that where this Venn diagrams is, I think about culture. Mm-hmm. And I think about where people grow up and what their touchstones are. And then they go out into the world and then it's like, but that wasn't the way I was raised. I, for, and the very simple thing to go back to cooking, for example, and I, I, use this, I use this all the time, is when you grow up a Chinese kid and you go to school and most of the people you go to school with are white and they speak in ways that, um, you know, that everybody should know what they're talking about, like, a colander. I only found out what a colander, what the actual word, what it meant a few years ago. I don't know, like, the vocabulary of the kitchen for right. a white kitchen. Um, foods. Um, even, like, music. When I was in high school, a lot of kids were um, going back to the music that their, their parents listened to, right? So it would be, like, whatever. I don't know, fucking Pink Floyd, the Who, or the Guess Who, or the Who, I don't know, are they different? The Who, the Guess Who? Yes, they're different. Okay, all that. And um, I I had no ability to reach out to my parents' music library and be able to understand and share in that experience. So These are the things when I talk about missing references, I can actually understand where Katy Perry is coming from. This is one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast, why we still enjoy so much of this as, we, as we're engaging in our second decade of this uh, work-friend romance thing that we have going. Um, you reminded me of, I, 
had a similar experience in that I could not go to my parents' music library, and it may be for a different reason. You may be about to say because they listened to, you know, uh, Chinese pop artists and because it was all sort of culturally that way. Mine may or may not be because of an immigrant kid experience, but you just reminded me of such a visceral memory of my father saying, Duana, when I'm growing up, you know there are these guys buy a record every week? He was scandalized that somebody would buy a record every week. This yes. is my dad, uh, and he's a whole other topic, but it's hilarious to me that uh, that he thought that was inconceivable, that the people who are filing every Pink Floyd record, P.S., I love that your Pink Floyd, The Who, and The Guess Who were uh, <laughs> sort of symbiotic of the music you didn't know. Uh, but yeah, I feel you. I hear that. It's nice to hear somebody say, I was an outsider. Yes. And especially someone who came, like Katy Perry, who right now is the furthest thing from an outsider. Sure. She's a huge, huge artist, right? She's beloved by many. Um, and what's most interesting to me along these same lines is that she sort of hints at, or the writer hints at, you know, her early outings were, her early musical outings were, I don't know, pedestrian, uh, wide in scope, right? Like, you can be mad at pop music, but you can't really deny the catchiness of California Girls. Yes. Or Teenage Dream, for that matter, right? Firework. Like, you, as soon as I say all those titles, as much as I can roll my eyes, they're all running through your head. They're really catchy. And look, I'm they not… They show up in the bathroom. Like, do you know what I mean? Songs that show up in the bathroom. You're peeing wherever you are, in a mall, in a restaurant, and it's being broadcast over the speaker system, that's Katy Perry. Okay, but you're not mad at it. No, my I'm point. not. You know it. It's so familiar. It's so familiar. And I would have to look up the songwriting credits. I don't think Katy Perry gets credit for writing those songs, I don't think. Um, I will look and find out. But they're catchy. However, she then sort of goes on to say, I want to do different stuff now. That's not what I want to do so much anymore. And, you know... There are a lot of people who go through this phase, right, uh, artistically, where they're like, oh, I want to move on from things that I've done before. And we kind of roll our eyes. If, if Adele was like, oh, I don't want to do those kinds of albums anymore, we'd be scandalized. But there's something about Katy Perry being open about the fact that this is sort of her adult education that makes you go, okay, let's, let's see what else you got. Now... Is this an excuse or a rationalization or an attempt to say, hey, remember five or six years ago when I burst onto the scene, when I declared myself not a feminist, when I gave mixed messages, when I appropriated other cultures? Um, is this a way of saying, hey, I didn't know. I'm still learning. Um, please let me have made those mistakes, and I promise you I learned from them? I mean, I don't know if it's a way to say it or if it's saying it straight out. And I have no problem with that. Like, we all should, I think, I hope that this is something that we are getting across with Show Your Work all the time. Maybe we're not. Make mistakes. Screw up. It's the only way that you're going to learn anything and get better is by doing something wrong, and then fixing it. Nobody who holds themselves back from making any mistakes is truly successful. 
Nobody who holds themselves back from trying things and then later going, I was wrong, I was uh, uninformed, I didn't know, is ever really going to make it to the pinnacle of anything. Um, you know, that's my, that's my feeling. You may not share it, but I think that that is, I think it's great. I think it's brave. I think it's really interesting to say, no, I didn't know. No, I didn't know what feminism was. No, I didn't know why some of the things that I did were uh, kind of the opposite of what I hoped they would be in terms of, you know, empowering women or whatever. But I think that we're coming to a more, an even more interesting kind of point here, which is Katy Perry is brave. So there's a whole thing in this article about how she was Katy Hudson and how I believe a, a Christian pop music career, which is not nothing, by the way. There are huge, huge Christian artists, and then sometimes they cross over into mainstream country and whatever. But a Christian pop career was in her hand, essentially, right? Yeah. Or she, like, I mean, I believe it says here that they moved to Nashville, or her parent, her mom took her to Nashville to get that done, and then she was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then she decided to break out and do her own thing. But that's brave. When you have it in the hand, when you have, oh, I could be Katie Hudson, like mainstream Christian artist, uh, you know, especially one that might pass. I remember, God, a long time ago now, there was some kind of grungy band who was outed as being Christian and everybody was scandalized, like, oh, they were passing for mainstream. Um, to have that, to have what success that would be and be like, no, I think I'm going to go another way. That's brave. That's interesting, right? It's more interesting to me about Katy Perry. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not in the, I'm not a Katy Perry super fan. But certainly this piece made me a little bit more interested in where Katy Perry has come from and where Katy Perry is now strategically and deliberately planning to go. Absolutely. I, I think this makes her more interesting. And to, it's always more interesting to see that somebody starts from, you know, I'm making big gestures with my hands that you can't see here. But if somebody starts at third base, as we say, and they sort of do something artistically that gets to home plate, that's good. That's great. But for somebody to start to just really hit my baseball metaphor up in the stands, up in the nosebleeds, and to then sort of hit a home run is is more interesting. I'm not saying she's hitting a home run, but if she's 33, if she's open about how much she doesn't know, how much she still has to learn, and she's excited to do so, and if there are people still paying attention, if we've talked about fans evolving with their artists or not, uh, you know, we often reference like Avril Lavigne doesn't have evolving fans. She just keeps singing at 14-year-olds. Yep. If her fans evolve with her, where Katy Perry is concerned, then this is this could be a really interesting career. You know, she she references Madonna, or actually she says Amy Grant was our Madonna, yeah, which is hilarious. Um, but she references Madonna, and God, the person Madonna started as—no criticism, but the person Madonna started as bears no resemblance to the person Madonna became. I don't think Madonna ever thought, oh, I know who I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to sort of make Kabbalah a mainstream word and adopt a series of children under, like, 
sketchy circumstances and et cetera, and high-profile romances and, and never have an acting career and all the rest of it. Like, you can't predict it. But this makes me more interested in Katy Perry, for sure. And, I mean, you're listing off, at this point, uh, female pop stars and how they evolve, who they start as and who they end up as. And I think that we've seen over and over again such an interesting list of examples of how female pop stars do actually roll on and, you know, create in a different way, self-invent all the time, even Beyonce. Absolutely even Beyonce. Um, do you find, and this is, a, this is the hypothesis that I just came on to, that the male ones don't? Justin Timberlake hasn't changed that much. Right. Or don't have to? Yes. Like, Justin Timberlake, and uh, yes, I've received all your notes about, uh, about J.C. Chazé's Chazé uh, and, you know, the relative talent therein. But I will say, for better or for worse, Justin Timberlake filled a slot. He filled a, like, white boy R&B slot that was unfilled, and so there it is. And he's sort of more or less still filling that slot. Yes? Yes. I referenced Johnny Lang last week, who is a not remotely as big a star, but Johnny Lang's thing, even as a teenager, was, oh, I'm a, like a real guitar player, like a real talented virtuoso guitar player who happens to sing. I don't know enough about virtuoso guitar players. There either wasn't a slot for that, they, or there wasn't an appetite for it. But yes, you're right, male pop stars tend more often, to get into a place and stay there. Or we are less ready to, to put them into a slot, right? Uh, like, who's Drake? Drake is um, your sensitive uh, R&B rap star, right? Like, who is not meant to be sensitive, who is not meant to be a singer and is sort of that contradiction in terms. That doesn't need to change, maybe. My next question, though, if that is our thesis, if someone like Justin Bieber follows it, well, so what will Justin Bieber look like in 10 years? Well, I don't know because I don't, like, this is where I differ from a lot of people. I don't know if Justin Bieber is, don't kill me, musically important. I know that Justin Bieber's musically talented. I get that. And I can sing My Mama Don't Like You along with everybody else. But I don't know if he is doing something interesting musically. So I don't know. I don't know where he's going. I don't know what slot he's going to fill. That's really interesting because I don't know, although we've said, we just said earlier that Katy Perry's music is pervasive. I actually don't know if we're talking about musical importance, if Katy Perry's musically important. She might be talented and those songs might be good and catchy. But is she doing anything different with the sound? I would argue that Taylor Swift is more musically important, if that is the parameter, than Katy Perry. Okay, well, musically or lyrically? Because I don't… I, first of all, I a little bit reject the premise that it's to compare the two, um, even though they're both pop music. But I guess the thing to me is that, partly because it seems like all of Taylor Swift's 
music has always been about a narrative, right? Like all every album is a story, every uh, song is a response to a someone. Um, I will accept that as her slot that nobody else is in, except maybe Adele, let's say. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's relatively trite pop. I'm not sure if it is musically doing anything interesting. Is Katy Perry? I don't know either, except that she is already saying, I want to do something else. I want to change something else. So to answer that question, I don't know. Is it musically important? I don't know. Um, as we were talking about Justin Bieber, I was thinking about the fact that female singers appear on the scene just being female singers, and we sort of wait for them to define themselves, right? Like you said, oh, look at Beyonce. Yeah, Beyonce could have just been any old, like, amazing R&B voice, right? Or, or Adele is, maybe is just a crooner, except that she's exceptional, you know, we, we sort of wait for them to define themselves. Uh, I think about Mandy Moore, who I cannot help but reference because Mandy Moore was a pop star who arrived on the scene. She sang some pop. It was then terrible. And, you know, Mandy Moore has famously said, I think everybody who bought my first two albums should get their money back. <laughs> then, she, uh, then she had an album called Coverage. She sang other people's songs. I don't know if it's her most successful. I would argue it's her most well-known. And now she's having a, you know, relative success as an actress. She's got a great voice, but that's not enough to be a musician, a female vocalist, a pop star. Mandy Moore never landed because there was no niche to be in or because she never found her way into one. True? True. So if we're talking about musical importance, I don't know. Like, I don't know if, like, who... Alicia Keys, to me, is more musically important than any of these people because she's doing interesting things and writing interesting songs and doing things with her albums that are both a lyrical narrative and a musical narrative. But Alicia Keys is not remotely as, as well-known or as big name as these people that we're talking about. No, and I mean, one of the biggest names, I, I, you know, and I guess if we're having this conversation about female pop stars, we have to bring up Britney. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about you saying that Katy Perry wants to do different things, that she's she saying, says. she says she wants to do different things, Britney has never or has been never allowed or for whatever, whatever the explanation is, that slot that you keep talking about. Yeah. Britney has occupied it, but isn't punching through the walls of it. No, and I, look, I have lots to say about Britney, but I don't think, I don't even think isn't allowed applies. I don't think she wants to or has the drive to, which is a whole other conversation, yes. right? Um, you know, maybe everybody has infinite hours of caring and Britney's were half used up by the Mickey Mouse Club before we ever knew about her. I don't know. Um, but... Yeah, no, I don't think she's doing anything musically interesting, and I don't think she wants to. And I don't even really think that she, I don't know, had the vocabulary, right? Like, we're all over the place in terms of musical influences versus pop versus the market. But you never really heard Britney say, oh, God, I really want to do what Ella Fitzgerald did. Or, you know, anybody, really. Even Jessica Simpson, yes, I said it. 
Even Jessica Simpson had more of a musical vocabulary because, again, she came from that church environment that is sometimes akin to gospel where they have sort of a, uh, a real sort of music as worship is a really important language, right? Mm-hmm. I should point out that uh, for interest's sake, I have never attended a church. I, am not, I have no sort of personal background in this region, and that's why it's kind of fascinating to me. Um, but in a lot of churches, in a lot of probably many religions, but in Christianity specifically, there are a lot of places where music as worship is a really respected thing. And part of that is getting to know genres, and part of that is getting to know sort of how your instrument works. And God, we know scores of musicians who say, well, I came up in church, right? Not just because I got a chance to sing or whatever, but because that's where they were trained. All this wrapping around to say they get exposed to genres, to musicians, to whatever. I don't think Britney ever did, or your mileage may vary, ever cared. But all this comes back to Katy Perry. You have a bug. You have a bug. I do have a bug. But, you know, but like, uh, yeah, first of all, though, let's finish up. Like, so now, Katy Perry, you will watch her next moves with? Mildly increased interest. Okay. Yes. Unexpected. Uh, right. For sure unexpected. For sure unexpected. And lest we have swept by it too quickly, you know, somebody who admits they don't know everything is interesting, right? Totally. But I did have an issue with the article. Um, this is a very typical Vogue article. It's well written. It is, uh, you know, fairly sort of wide reaching in that they do some, you know, a few interesting things, right? Uh, like they have dinner, they show up at a shoot, they this, that, and whatever. But I was a little annoyed because the article is written by a dude. There's a sort of weird structure about it happening on Valentine's Day. Uh, And then it sort of tells uh, about what she eats. Oh, she eats a smorgasbord of different pastas and risottos that she has specially ordered. Quote, yay, this is my Valentine. And opts for the house special cheesecake as a final flourish bracket. Luckily, those Kaukubo creations are very forgiving. Okay. So earlier… That refers to the clothes that she has to wear in the photo shoot, presumably the next day. Right. Ray yes. Kawa- yes. Ray Kawakubo uh, is a designer. Luckily, those Kaukubo creations are very forgiving. This phrase, mm-hmm. this idea that she… Because she ate so many pastas and risottos and cheesecake… And luckily, those outfits are very forgiving. Turned me off so hard. I was so angry. The idea that, you know, if if she was anything less than, like, first of all, you have to do so much mental gymnastics to kind of go, oh, so he's saying that she might be, like, bloated or bigger or fatter the next day. Uh, luckily, they're very forgiving. So, because we won't see her be bloated or bigger or fatter because if we did, oh man, like then what? Then Then what? You'd throw her off the cover of this magazine? Exactly. Then we're not interested in her anymore. Then what? I was so frustrated. And I I did kind of question myself because, you know, I get it. Uh, I every day uh, have a new weird thing with my body where I'm like, oh, I guess I'm older. I guess the old rules no longer apply from yesterday. I get that sometimes when you overindulge, you feel sluggish or dried out or whatever the next day. But 
first of all, he's putting that on her. Needless to say, this article is written by a man. Um, and B, I just found it, yeah, such a value judgment. Like, and a bait and switch. You invite her to dinner, but then you're going to judge what she eats? I was so mad. Am I right or wrong to be mad about this? You're totally right. And there are so many angles to be mad at. Like, the fact that the implication here, too, is that she is brave for eating all these pastas and this dessert. Like, as if what a woman consumes is related to her courage. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and then luckily, like the, the term luckily, hey, but you know what? She's, so call her brave, which we have problem in the, with, like, with, we have a problem with to begin with. Call her brave. But for then eating, un- for nourishing her yes, body. But then undermine her bravery by saying that it all comes down to chance. Luckily. Those costumes, blah, 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 that's blah. That's right. So are you saying she's brave? Because stick to it then. If you're going to make that thing, then stick to it. Do not undercut the bravery. But not even, because I think it's bullshit to say it's brave. And because you chose this restaurant. Like the whole scam, this is my whole thing with all these articles, these profiles, right? Oh, we go from a work thing to a dinner thing to, oh, let's just pat around your apartment or whatever, or it's a dark room and fuck off. You set up this scenario in which she's supposed to eat dinner. If she had picked at her food, you would have been like, uh, her trademark, you know, uh, lackadaisicalness falls away when she only picks at her risotto and pretends to eat. What the fuck is this? Well, I mean, I think that it's becoming more and more common now, though, on, in these profiles with women. Like, Blake Lively will say how many cookies she eats and how much she loves ice cream, and everybody eats. It's almost as if, you know, everybody is trying to live up to that fallacy or that um, that pretend world in which, like, I'm just like you. I like the pasta. I like. I don't starve myself. Unlike, you know, the Julianne Moore, who once said very famously in a magazine, um... I have not eaten. I am miserable all the time. That's right. Or that famous line yeah. in Notting Hill uh, from yes, Anna, Anna Scott. who is, of course, Julia Roberts, yes. uh, saying, I've been on a diet for a decade. Yes. So I've um, been hungry since I was 20. Something right. like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, seems true. But my issue here, I guess, is that, yeah, I sort of get the trend of including what you mm-hmm. ate. Oh, we this or we that. But the shaming is another level. It's one thing to say, oh, a, a bunch of spaghettis and risottos that she, uh, that she ordered specially. That's a bit of fantasy. But the shaming of luckily, they're so forgiving. Yeah. First of all, you do not gain weight that fast, especially if you have the metabolism and body shape and regimen of a Katy Perry, who I have no doubt pays a trainer to work her out two hours a day because that's part of the job. We can even say you need that level of fitness to go on tour and maintain that kind of crazy lifestyle. But the fucking fallacy of saying, oh, you luckily they're pretty forgiving, the clothes she's going to wear the next day, it's shaming. It's implying that she's unattractive or teetering on the precipice of unattractive. And it is utterly out of place in what is otherwise supposed to be framed as this article about, look how grown up she's becoming. Look at the evolution of Katy Perry. We're shaming her for uh, her body for eating like, let it be said, a grown woman as opposed to maintaining a child's body. It's just really unattractive and tacky and made me not enjoy the article, which was otherwise well-written. Okay, so tell me about Shonda. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Well, okay. I mean, you tell me about Chanda. You sent me the article a few days ago uh, that came out in advance of the Scandal 100th episode, which was sort of an oral history of how that show went down and sort of an oral history of Shonda Rhimes overall, right? Yeah, and it was pegged to the 100th episode of Scandal, Carrie Washington, revealing, you know, the secrets of Scandal. Um, I guess what everyone picked up on, too, was the fact that um, originally Olivia Pope was supposed to be Tammy Taylor. Well, sort of. That is, people said, oh, this is the perfect role for Connie Britton. And Shonda Rhimes said, oh, yeah, except Olivia Pope is black. Yes. Before Carrie Washington was ever thought of. Right. And so, of course, Olivia Pope is inextricably linked to Carrie Washington. But it made me think about Shonda. It made me think about the masterclass that I know people are talking about I am not taking. I think you are, or participating, or at least you know more about it. So I sent it to you, and I was like, you know what? Here's our chance to talk, praise, love, not Shonda Rhimes. Well, look, we don't lack for any uh, praise for Shonda Rhimes around here ever, right? It's, it's fantastic. It's interesting. The 100th episode, which aired last week, is sort of a, a reason why. It's an alternate universe episode. It's the soapy version of what Scandal could have been, right? Olivia gets married and, uh, you know, Fitz, uh, she and Fitz get married. Quinn is on The Bachelor, apparently, uh, in this alternate universe. It's funny. It's hilarious. Um, and this is what Shonda Rhimes does so well. She walks the line between the soapy and the heartbreaking, the dramatic and the kind of titillating. And a lot of people, and a lot of TV people, tend to be kind of critical of that. Like, uh, it often is said sort of derisively, oh, Shonda Rhimes is commercial as though that's a bad thing. So, the masterclass. If you don't know what these masterclasses are, like, where did you hear about them first, even beyond Shonda's? I, like, I I think I heard about it because um, Serena Williams did one. That's right. the one that I wanted. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Serena Williams, imagine, the greatest of all time teaching you how to play tennis. Like, who wouldn't want to sign up? So why didn't you? I can't remember. Um, but that was that was the one that hooked me. When I came across the headline, I was like, these people are doing masterclass. I think Alec Baldwin did one. Um, but the one that, yeah, was the Serena one. So what's really interesting to me is, like, how do they get these names? Masterclass, if you don't know, is an online series of lectures on, on what they're experts in from people like... Frank Gehry teaches design and architecture. Gordon Ramsay teaches cooking. Uh, Dead Mouse uh, teaches electronic music production. Serena Williams teaches tennis. And I think it varies from celebrity to celebrity, but they spend, you know, hours giving these lectures, which are right there in front of you, 
which you can sort of play back at your leisure. They cost, uh, I think, Canadian dollars. It cost $99. I think it was 90 for our U.S. friends. That is not nothing. It's relatively nothing to have all this information coming at you. And so I was really surprised about why. Why did they do this? How much are they paying them? Uh, the biggest sort of James Patterson, I guess, is that number one author, like writes a book in the airport every week, right? Yes. Like, no, you, like literally every week. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. need the money. So yeah. what, why? Um, Usher, like I'm just watching these scroll by Christina Aguilera, Kevin Spacey, and of course, Aaron Sorkin. Oh, fucking Sorkin. So... I was, I don't know what I was expecting when I signed up for the Shonda Rhimes writing class, which yes, I am doing. And it's not, you know, it's not scheduled. You can do it on your own pace. There are, I've gone back and forth between the lessons. It is shocking. I don't know how people aren't doing this. I know there are a lot of like online Harvard and Yale classes that I'm not taking that I probably would benefit from. Shonda Rhimes is amazing. She never says, um, she never says, uh, and if you were telling me this, I'd be like, oh, it's the magic of editing. There are no cuts. There are no cuts in Shonda Rhimes sitting there spewing her wisdom at you. And the thing about her wisdom that's most interesting is it's just her being sure of herself. Like she just, I, I found out that she, like me and a select group of others, uh, uses the less popular screenwriting software, Movie Magic, as opposed to Final Draft, which is kind of the, the bigger industry standard. Um, it's, it's like a Mac PC kind of debate, guys. Uh, and it's just, she's just so sure of herself. She doesn't explain herself. She just knows. It's fascinating to listen to, certainly as a TV person, but even as not. But I can see you have a question. Like, no, I think that, I mean, it's fascinating on so many levels. As you said, you listed off all those questions. How much are they paid? Why are they doing this? How come so many are they, of them are doing this? And all these names. But what's fascinating to me also is that work and how we work or how people worked used to be a secret. People used to mis like make it into a mystery. You either didn't want to reveal it because you wanted to hold your cards close to your chest or you thought it was boring but now people want to share with you how they work. What exactly is it that they do when they're working? That to me is fascinating. It's sexy. Um, and I don't know, I, I want to know when we got here, when we ceased to sort of stop guarding our work habits as some sort of thing that would be lost as soon as you sort of um, let the genie out of the bottle. Well, I really wonder, even as you say that, I wonder if that's confined to uh, writers or actors or artists because, you know, Gordon Ramsay keeps scanning by me here and I'm like, well, the cooking shows have been a thing as long as there's been television. People have been teaching you how to cook or writing books telling you how to cook. It's just that you're bad, so you can't. But that was always Julia Child's goal, right? Or Serena Williams. Like, you know how she works. It's just that you can't get there in theory, right? What can, I don't mean what can she tell you because of course she can tell you all kinds of things, but I don't think the endless drills, I don't think the, you know, you tell me, you know tennis, how many hours on a, on a court in a day or what is a boring thing that you might spend all day doing just for the sake of it? 
Well, I mean, you're doing drills. Like, you're just serving over and over again. Or you're like, you know, the machine is there. Listen, I don't know. I'm not like Serena Williams. Give me a jargon. Like, what's a, like, I don't know, backhand smash sounds too sexy for a drill. (laughs) Like, Um, you know, working on your slice. Sure. Working on your lobs. Working on your drop shots. Right. But, I mean, it's more than that, though. I feel like part of being Serena Williams, probably in her training time, I would say maybe only 15% is actually spent on the court because the rest of the time is training. You're running, you're doing, you're actually like doing side-by-side drills. You're working on your footwork. That's not actually things that you're doing with the tennis racket in your hand. You're getting a massage. The massages are big. The ice baths, the ice baths are big. The, the physical therapy is big. Right. And I'm sure there's a mental game, right? Meditation, concentration, something, uh, some way that that is, is helping. So, all this to say, I don't know what she can tell us in her masterclass. If you're taking her masterclass, tell us, let us know. But yeah, I think the secrecy that you're talking about is largely about writers and about maybe artists or actors or whatnot. There's a Christina Aguilera teaches singing that I think would probably be fascinating. The other thing that's so, so interesting about hiding work versus showing work and about making mistakes, which I love as a topic, is that Shonda Rhimes includes, one of the things that's most interesting about the Shonda Rhimes Masterclass is there are tons and tons of downloads. The Grey's Anatomy Bible, which is a document that is used to sell the doc, which is a document that's used to sell the show to the network, which is never uh, seen by, by people. Uh, you know, three different versions of Scandal scripts, uh, that never saw the light of day. Different versions of who Olivia was, who uh, Harrison was, how the show got started. All kinds of things that are essentially not the way the show went. Uh, saying their mistakes is maybe a little harsh, but they're, they're steps in the process. I'm fascinated that she is revealing them, is showing them to people, you know, is is kind of unshy about letting those things out there. Well, it's also a level of confidence, right? Like, I haven't worked on a Bible um, as you have, but I do know what's involved in first drafting and in, like, your initial things that you put on paper end up being dramatically different when they actually are watched at 8 o'clock on Thursday nights or 9 o'clock on Thursday nights. Um, You always say you can't fix nothing. So those early things, those Bibles, those early specs, those scripts – those are things that are not perfect. In fact, they're far from perfect. They have to be not perfect because if they if you got them perfect, they'd never get there. The whole process is rewriting, rewriting, redoing. That's right. And so to show that, there's a level of confidence that comes. Of course, Shonda can be confident. She is, you know, the showrunner of how many shows and how many awards and everybody knows Shonda to be a showrunner who is like known as a brand. Of course she can be confident. But at the same time, we all have... Um, especially now in the age of Instagram and filters, we all don't want to show our boils and our warts. Like, that is the thing with writers who I meet and people who email every day looking for writing tips is, you know, I have to get it perfect before I show somebody. You know, I don't want to show you yet. I've written like 10 pages, but I, I just have to work on them some more because they're not great. It doesn't matter can't matter. They can't get better after a while because you're only you. Maybe that's the big secret, right? The secret is supposed to be, oh, you know, I wrote this from my brain and my heart. 
And the truth is when you are writing every day for a job the way you do, the way I do, the way people of all different stripes do, there's lots of people involved. There are editors who offer you advice. There are clients who want different things out of what you're doing. There are, you know, production concerns. There are all kinds of things, even on something like Lanny Gossip, which in theory flows straight from your head and emotions and rage straight onto the internet, there are things to be satisfied, right? Post length that makes it most optimal for readers and for advertisers and for, uh, you know, pictures and all the rest of it. Other people help you get better. Other people help you get better. And also it takes away from the, what I particularly like about Shonda and people who are doing this and what Shonda's sharing is it takes away from the romanticism of the creative class. That's right. Collectively, there's been this sort of romanticization of creativity, especially with writing. And of genius. Of genius, right. And the, the image that you get is that, you know, you're walking in a garden and the angel of inspiration flies down, sits on your shoulder, and suddenly a book is fully formed and you put it out and it becomes a bestseller and it changes the world. That is actually fucking not what writing is. Um, we had, uh, I had a chance recently to talk to Lily Singh. Oh, yeah. And she's come out with a book. Um, and, you know, and she's so inspirational for all her followers, her millions and millions and millions of followers. You know, she's a young go-getter. She calls it being a boss. Like, I, I can't say it. It's B-A-W-S-E, boss. Be a boss. Boss, yeah. Boss. And one of the things she recommends is scheduling inspiration. Now, it might seem like an oxymoron, right? Because up to this point, or for many, many decades, centuries, inspiration was supposed to be spontaneous. Right. You couldn't predict when she would arrive. Uh So when you have to schedule inspiration, it means that there's actually something more deliberate about being inspired. And that you can control when your inspiration comes out in the form or as a consequence of hard work. Shonda herself in Year of Yes uses a great way of talking about the work process of putting together a series like Scandal or Grey's where you cannot rest after one episode because while you were writing that episode, you are, quote, laying track. Right. And she is talking about story track, but also... Uh, you have to provide the work for the rest of the crew, the actors and the crew and whatever. If you don't write it, whatever the fuck it is, if you don't write it, they can't shoot it. Yeah. And when you're writing 22 episodes, I'm sorry, the angel isn't coming fucking 22 times for every episode. The angel isn't there. It's you. That's right. And whatever you write, your job is not to have inspiration, your job is to make it into something inspirational, even if what you come up with when you're sitting there and your deadline is coming is like, I, I don't know, they're, they're sitting around a table arguing, whatever. They're making cake, something. You have to make that into something. That's what the job of it is. Yeah. And the job, I guess, of these master classes, if I'm going to take my takeaway from it, is that it is removing the magic away from the work and just letting the work be as it is. But here's what's so interesting to me about that. Like, yeah, we can sit here and go, oh, they're pulling the cover back on writing. That's amazing. Blah, blah, blah. I still tend to think of the angel of inspiration coming down, as you put it, applying to actors. Oh, some people are just talented. Some and musicians, people... too. Like, well, it's... no, but music is work. I know where it's work. I know where... 
like tennis, where you have to build this foundation, which begets this, which begets this, which begets this sort of pyramid of once you have these skills, you can, you know, be a creator and, uh, you know, you have to build the base skills in order to get there. But I don't know if we, as you say, I don't know if a lot of people see that with writing. And I guess I'm still ignorant about it with acting, which is fascinating. I'm not going to be taking an acting masterclass, but the basis of all of those things that you hear about improv and mime and whatever else, in theory, are building to a place where you can be whoever, Meryl Streep. It's just that some people run the, the stairs faster than others. I don't know if we'll get to a point where actors actually give you the building blocks, where they do a master class on like, you know, to me the perfect scenario would be when they finish playing a character and then they go back and walk you through the text that they read, um, the notes that they made, because they all do. They make their no- notes, they read their text, they try out, they video themselves in the mirror trying out the voices, trying out the blinks, trying out the turn of the cheeks. Um, that would be the equivalent. But I'm not sure if we're, I don't know. I, will we see it from actors and to a certain extent certain musicians? I mean, like, I hear what you're saying about the building blocks of being able to write music and all the years that go into knowing the basics of music before you write a song, but we are still constantly hearing from musicians, I wrote that song in 15 minutes. Right. And and sometimes that's true. And sometimes you write a piece in 15 minutes and sometimes a million things. Uh, but yeah, in theory, it's because you're so agile with those skills. There is a Kevin Spacey teaches acting. There is a Steve Martin teaches comedy on these masterclasses. Maybe it can be taught. I have no idea. Uh, Dustin Hoffman teaches acting. Uh, so maybe there are things that can be boiled down or maybe, uh, they don't look like anything. Do they end up looking like what Shonda gives and what a gift, like, you know, I'm, you just told me this today. I didn't know that with her masterclass came the Bible, came the spec scripts. You know what I mean? Like it sounds, it still sounds so broad when Steve Martin teaches comedy and whoever Kevin Spacey teaches acting because does he drill down to that one character? What Shonda's doing is she's giving you the Bible for grace, you know, the spec scripts for scandal. It's a drill down to, hey, you've already seen these shows, these episodes, and I'm telling you how we arrived at that. I would like to see it if we're talking about, and of course, if you've watched or if you've gone through the Kevin Spacey master class, let us know if he takes his character in American uh, Beauty, right? Sure. If he takes his, or if he takes Frank. Uh, Frank Underwood? Underwood, yeah. If he takes Frank and tells you how he built Frank from scratch and what he used. I assume he can't not use that accent at some point in the masterclass, uh, the Frank yeah. Underwood accent. I don't know. Uh, needless to say, masterclass is not a sponsor of this podcast. Uh, we were, this is not a paid endorsement. But they could be. It's just a cool <laughs> thing that is a cool thing to check out and that is more surprising than uh, the airport seminar that you might initially think it is. And because this is a shorter podcast, we have now come to our final regular feature of our mini podcast, but every podcast too, is Do We Need to Care About? Um, it's a roundabout Do We Need to Care About, um, but we all care about money. Oh yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's roundabout at all. Do we need to care about money? Of course we do. Um, and so what's interesting about this is who cares about money and how. Uh, so this is sort of a... A, a duo 
of articles that kind of came through at once, right? There was uh, one in New York Magazine that you sent me that I think we've both been reading over and over again. I think we actually sent it to each other. Oh, no. Yes, I did send it to you, but I think that you were about to send it to me or something, and we were bursting out of our phones. I, 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 I think I remember your immediate response was, oh, I could fucking talk about this all day. And let's, let's do it. Yes. Um, so it, uh, as you mentioned, it's a New York Magazine article that was published um, a couple weeks ago. And the title of the article is The A-List Accountant Who Tries to Keep Celebrities from Going Broke. So this is told in first person. So the A-List Accountant actually writes, me, my, I do this. The anonymous A-List Accountant, we and should say. And she, or he, um, she, I'm going to say she, I, I don't think we know gender here. I don't think we know either, but it did seem to be a woman for various reasons. Yeah, She is hilarious, first of all. So it's a juicy, for those of you, I know, like, you know, the draw here is always gossip. So for those of you who want the dirt, it's juicy. Here's what she starts off with. My clients are actors, musicians, writers, newscasters, directors, models, and producers, many of them Grammy and Academy Award winners. So you get who we're talking about here. And what was the part that made you laugh the most? Oh, I mean... All, the whole thing made me laugh, just the details. Like, she says that one of her clients wanted a $50,000 suit of armor made. Mm-hmm. Like, who the fuck needs that? But $50,000. She goes on, on and on and on to say what ridiculous whims that they need. Uh, you know, the fact that they'll fly private because they just don't want to be seen in the airport. So that's the difference between, you know, a $50,000 chartered plane and paying whatever, $6,000. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, you know, so the suit of armor cracked me up. Um, I guess what didn't crack me up, but I was nodding, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, is when she talks about how these people, these celebrities, will go down the list of sycophants and supporters um, until until they will find one person who will finally say yes. So she says here, I had one client who wanted to buy a property. I said, it's a really bad idea. You don't have enough money. You can barely scrape together the down payment, blah, blah, blah. The mortgage is going to kill you. They called my partner, who said, don't do it. They called someone else, don't do it. Called someone else, that's a bad idea. Finally, they landed upon that one person, maybe the fucking gardener or the baker or whatever, and the baker was like, oh, yeah, you should buy that property, and they do it. Like, to me, that is so, I mean, it is mind-boggling, and yet also completely relatable, because I'm not convinced that this is just a celebrity problem. No, it's understandable. And, you know, another thing that uh, that she says is uh, that she'll go to a client and say, listen, you're overspending, you need to cut back, and they're just wasteful and dumb, her words. And it's frustrating if they won't listen. And they say, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Uh, and then six months or a year down the road, they go, where's all my money? What did you do with it? So one of the things that I thought was so interesting here is, as a society, we don't talk about money, right? This is a surprise to me, because I feel like, why not? I know. I know it's one of those politeness things. Uh, I was surprised to find out that parents aren't supposed to tell their children how much money they make. Because why? Because they might say it to other people or something. Western culture, though. Yeah. Yeah, Western culture. Asian culture is all about money in your face. I... Or at least Chinese Asian culture. Right. Like, I was not Asian, but I knew exactly how much money my parents made. And the day that they paid off the mortgage was like a party day. It was very exciting. But one of the reasons that I think this exists, this sort of money thing, and we hear all the time about stars going broke and whatnot, 
is not just because they don't want to know, although I'm sure it is. They hear, oh, you're going to get $5 million for this or whatnot and go like, oh my God, I have money forever. But the other thing is, who are you going to talk to about it? So let's just play a little like scenario here. Okay. So suppose you get your first movie role. Oh my God, amazing. Yeah. And you're going to be paid, oh, I don't know, 750 grand. So much money. That's huge. So what do you do with it? Should you, uh, you know, put it in the bank? Should you pay off your house? Should you buy another property? What's the best thing you should do with it? Well, you don't know, but you can't ask anybody because your friends are still, you know, if you're an actor, probably your friends are all actors scraping by as waiters. They don't want to hear that you're suddenly super rich. Uh, the accountant who might steer you right costs money. Do I really need an accountant? I don't know if I need somebody like that. Uh, you know, your agent doesn't want to talk about the nitty gritty of that. They want to find you the next $750,000 job. They hope. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and don't tell anybody it was seven fifty. Tell them it was a million so that your yep. quote moves up, et cetera. We have this weird culture where, yeah, if you become a celebrity, like who's the ne- the most recent biggest whoever, the sort of instant star? The most recent instant star? Like somebody who's a legit big deal that wasn't before. I don't know. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Sure. Like, who is going to tell Jennifer Lawrence how to deal with $20 million a picture? Um, $20 million a picture, you say, okay, she's made like seven movies. She's fine. Yeah, you're fine. But then until you start buying islands and, you know, planes and things like that, at which point, who's going to advise you on that? It's a really tricky thing to come by. Well, and... You know, my whole game has always been how Hollywood is a reflection of real life, mm-hmm. um, how Hollywood is a mirror to who we are socially as well, even as non-celebrities. And to go back to, you know, whether or not this story is relatable, we're actually seeing that in civilians. I mean, how many people are bogged down? I was talking to this, um, I was talking about this with my, my friend Fiona yesterday. We were talking about celebrities and we were talking about, you know, what we were going to talk about today. And I think that I was starting to veer on the, oh my God, celebrities are so extra and outrageous. And she was like, but wait a second, Elaine, real people do this too. We have heard about people having maxed out on 25 credit cards, down payments that are only 5%, Mm -hmm. people living beyond their means all the time, all the time. I think like you sent me a magazine article a few years ago about house prices and how many people live like, or what people are, what home, what kind of homes people are living in in Toronto, how much they make, and, you know, what, how they're supporting themselves. Remember right. that article? Oh, sure. House poor is a term that comes up a yes. lot around here a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just obviously as celebrities, their indulgences are much bigger indulgences, but that is just the equation. Yeah. And I'm not even mad at that in the sense that, yeah, if you get a $5 million paycheck, There are things available to you that aren't always, but it's hard to know the limits. Like if, look, if somebody tomorrow was like, here you go, here's $5 million for what amounts to 10 weeks of work, do you think I wouldn't go on a shopping spree? I would. I wouldn't go on 10. I wouldn't go every week. It's that sort of limit of how to know and when to know how much money do you have, how much of it do you need to save? Like the concept of taxes that nobody seems to be able to embrace. Well, what I love too about this article is in that same paragraph that I was reading before, um, 
you know, they, whoever this was, wanted to buy a property. Everybody said it's a bad idea. But finally, they landed on a person who said, just do it. Then they go back to their agent, the celebrity or the actor does, and the agent's like, okay, fine, buy the house. I'll get you more work. And that is what's interesting, is that when the work and the kind of work that's available or what you choose speaks to whether or not you get to pay off the property, that's a very, it's a, another different conversation. It's also a metric that, forgive me, accountants, most accountants don't understand, right? To have a very variable income, to make, uh, you know, three times 20 million one year if you make three movies and make zero dollars the following year is a thing that's hard to, it's hard to put into an algorithm. It's hard to sort of project, oh, I'll make this at this time. It's so unpredictable. You don't know. You have no idea how it will be, what it will be, and you can't bank on it. You almost have to bank on earning your previous poor person income. And by poor person, of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. But you're not super wealthy person income in order to protect your assets. But look, as you say, nobody tells civilians this, let alone nobody pulls aside the famous, especially the 18 or 22 or 30-year-old famous, and says, here's how you should deal with your money now that you're in the rarefied one 0.1% of 1%, right? Like it's a conversation that doesn't happen. But what's also fascinating, but what's also fascinating is that this is one of the reasons why they, celebrities, can be so fucking cheap. Freebies, freebies everywhere. It is so funny to me when I hear about ex-actress who, I don't know, or ex-actor who makes $50,000, or sorry, like whose last picture was, I don't know, $20 million, and then on the back end they got some cut. Sure. And the freebies that they need to be taking. Um, it's also really funny, but this explains it for people who are like, oh, are they poor? Kind of. Well, the other thing is, like, just to really be quick about it, if we were sitting here with somebody who made, let's be conservative, say made $10 million on their last project, they would say to you, well, first of all, first of all, half of it goes to taxes. So now we're at $5 million. Yep. Uh, then their agent gets 10% of the original $10 million. Mm -hmm. So that's a million gone. So now we're at yep. uh, $4 million. Then you if, have a manager. If they have a manager who gets 15%, that's another million and a half. So what are we at now? Three and a half? Yep. Uh, if you have a publicist who is working for you full time, I don't know what they get. Let's say they get half a percent. That's another five hundred grand. Yeah. So now we're down to three, right? Yep. $3 million is still a lot, a lot of money, but it's not $10 million. You haven't flown yourself to the places that you fly. You haven't paid your stylist who's going to dress you for all the events that happen. Sometimes that's paid for by your studio, but sometimes it isn't. Uh, you know, you haven't bought any property yet. So let's say you want a little pied-a-terre in, in LA to get in and out of. I mean, I, we all know what properties cost now. So if you spend $2 million on a place, that's going to get you four beds, three baths, nothing fancy, not in a huge, amazing, gated community. And now you have just about a million dollars, right? Yep. And everybody you've ever met is looking at your paycheck in a magazine going like, hey, can you lend me some money? Do you want to invest in my restaurant? Do you want to whatever? And so it goes pretty fast. It goes pretty fast. And then when you talk about celebrities that this accountant is talking about, and they have their whims and the island and the flights and the private and the this and the that, well, then it's, there's no more. Right. And there's literally no more. And that's if you're making $10 million as a huge paycheck. The problem is that even smaller amounts of money sound huge, right? Do that same math 
on uh, on a hundred thousand dollars, which sounds big, or on a million dollars, I should say, and you're left with maybe a hundred grand. Uh, which, if you make one movie that year, a hundred grand is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money if you need to stretch it over the next three years until you get paid again, until you get your next role. Yeah. But, I mean, and that's only when you're lucky to have, let's say, an accountant like this who actually is ethical and who actually is somebody who's going to say no to you. Hey, you ha- you're not going to be able to pay this mortgage. You've got the 80 cars that you already own. Let's not do this. Right. But as we've heard, some of them are not lucky. No. And, for instance, a week later after this New York Magazine piece came out, Alanis Morissette it, you know, her former business manager wrote an open letter in The Hollywood Reporter saying, I stole from Alanis Morissette and other clients and I'm sorry. So <laughs> Alanis Morissette lost something like millions of dollars. This um, is somebody who embezzled, who uh, didn't necessarily file back taxes at a certain time, right, which were required to be paid. Uh, it's complicated when you're a celebrity, when you're Alanis or anybody, because you're also probably a corporation. You're probably paying all kinds of people on your tour or whatever as a business. Uh, It can get very complicated. It can get very easy to lose bits of money and go like, oh, well, is that, unless you're really paying attention, I can see how easy it would be for them to skim, yeah, five, ten, a hundred thousand dollars. I don't know. But also, it's, and I'm not saying this is what Alanis encountered, but it also, when you make that $10 million paycheck, it leaves you vulnerable, as you said, to the sycophants and the vultures who come and say, I can invest this for you, and I can turn the 10 into 100. Mm-hmm. And when you are looking at the 10 and, be, and it becomes three and four, and or three and two and one and 500,000, when a person like that comes along and says, hey, you had to skim off so much off the top for your manager, for your agents, for the taxes, let me see how I can make your money last longer and grow it. Those, like, I mean, they become much more susceptible to that kind of con. Absolutely. Especially if you are aware of, oh, this may not last forever. I should invest this. I yeah. should take care or of it. Or you're already bitter. Like, fuck, I just paid all that in the taxes and my manager took that and I have to pay the publicist. Yeah, that anger, too, fuels into it. And you're like, well, fuck, somebody get me somebody who can make, like, let me keep my $10 million and turn it into 50. It's, uh, yeah, it's an easy, easy road to go down. Um, It used to happen a lot to child actors, and now there's uh, what's called Coogan's Law, which is in California and different places have different ideas where X amount of a child's earnings have to be put away tax-free for them because unscrupulous, uh, unscrupulous accountants slash parents half the time were skimming the money and the kids were not even equipped to know any better. So yeah, it, it's easy to see how it can happen. And yet, like the, the reason why this is so, I mean, we get so obsessed about this and we could talk about all, this all day is because it's very, you know, you have a person who's an artist who um, is very good at that part of their job. Mm-hmm. You could argue that the other part of their job is to protect their gift, their instrument. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's why you hear about uh, Celine Dion insuring her voice, That's right? right? Or Jennifer uh, Lopez allegedly insuring her ass. Exactly. And also, being good at your job should be, should it be being aware of your money, being smart about your money? Well, you know, I said a lot of stars are 
corporations for sort of tax and business reasons, uh, they're also brands, as we often talk about, right? So yeah, it's Jennifer Lawrence, the person, may not know that much about finances. But Jennifer Lawrence, the brand, needs to protect that brand, needs to make it grow, needs to ensure its longevity the same way you do if you have a brand that's like involved in paving stones. So yeah, they should be paying attention. Should actors and celebrities, should famous people go through a master class of money management? <laughs> if you are the celebrity accountant, you could make a lot of money teaching a master class for these guys. Is this our next business? Because yes, it could run that class. Oh, absolutely. But is Yasik going to let them buy, like, the suits of armor and the things they want to buy? <laughs> no, he probably won't. But he would teach the master class. He would take the money that they would pay for that master class and be like, fuck all y'all if you're going to buy a $50,000 $50, suit of armor. At least I've got, I've got the sign up. Oh, I thought you were going to say he would invest it for them like, like parents, you know, who'd be like, uh, <laughs> you're pay rent. And then you find out that they were saving it the whole time. No, I'm actually really curious. Like, you know, agencies now... And just to end on this note, agencies now, the CAAs, the mm -hmm. UTAs, they have such broad streams of business and of protection and of, you know, training for their talent. I'm really curious. And part of those streams are like they have a philanthropy program, right? Where they, you know, match up the celebrity with the philanthropic whatever, avenue that they might want to merge with and connect to. I wonder why there is no segment at CAA that is like talent financial management courses. Well, let's say that there or was. Is it, yeah, or is it not to their benefit? First of all, I'm not sure it's to their benefit for anybody to be looking too closely. Second of all, uh, you know, you conflated celebrity and talent there. But I think a lot of the people that we're talking about who find themselves in these positions are not the A++ list, unless they get made off. Uh, but the, you know, the second and third and fourth leads who do pretty well in some things, in some movies, but and who make a bit of money, or who do one series and never do one again, and who, you know, nobody's paying that close attention to. Except us. Except us. We're thinking about you. So yes, we care about money. <laughs> Always care about money. Keep caring about your money. You absolutely should care about your money. Watch your money. It is not tacky. It is not unseemly to ask questions of your accountant. Find out what's happening to your money. Thank you for joining us on this special Easter episode of Show Your Work. Please keep sending us your notes. We love your messages. We love your comments. Um, and check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Hope you had a great long weekend, and we will see you next time. Work hard. Bye. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.